The first reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The second reading is from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, continuing until the first verse of chapter 14. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, 
and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Our Father in heaven, we need wisdom to understand your word and courage to live in light of it. And we pray you give us both now as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please do keep Revelation 13 open in front of you. Um, if you've got a Bible on your phone, that would be even better, but there is the server sheet if you want that. Um, and let me add my welcome to Davies. Uh, it's really good to see you, those who are in the building with masks on and those who are at home. I can't see you, but it's great to have you with us. Just to say, if, you, if you've just come to church, maybe for the first time in a while, uh, or, or you're not used to the book of Revelation, I, I do realize that reading might have sounded very, very strange like some kind of children's fairy tale, myths of dragons and beasts, kind of a million miles away from real-life Edinburgh issues. But actually, to think of the book of Revelation as myths for children is about as far away from what it really is as you could, as you could be. It's not just a misunderstanding, it's a misreading of the kind of literature this is. You see, this book does use pictures, symbolic language, graphic visions, and it is more kind of impressionistic painting than photorealistic journalism, but it is absolutely connected to the real world, and it is written for grown-ups. In fact, tonight, the issues we're going to look at are deadly serious. Tonight, we're going to think about the forces that can be operating in the world of politics and ideology, especially in some of the most harrowing places for Christians to live, both across church history and globally across human cultures. So one of the questions tonight is, how do you explain Hitler or the rise of ISIS when it storms through the Middle East or contemporary dictators all across the globe? Or historically, Nero and the Roman Empire and their brutal attack on Christians and the church? And how do you explain why so many normal people got kind of swept up in these movements? How can it be that humans are capable of of such evil, sometimes on an organized scale, even a state-sponsored scale? These are grown-up issues. Before we get to the beasts, let me just remind us where we are in the big picture of Revelation at this point. Um, So I know I didn't give you long, but how did you get on with the kind of repeated words exercise? Um, One of the options you could have found, repeated language of war. There's a lot about war in here. I wonder if you noticed that. Um, So chapter 12, verse 17. Um, The dragon, that's a symbol for, for Satan, became furious with the woman. That's a symbol for God's people and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's individual Christians. So as Davi said last week, we saw Satan being defeated at the cross. Jesus wins. Satan is kind of cast out of heaven. He's got no accusations left to make of God's people because they're forgiven forever at the cross. But now, in raging anger, He's opening up another battlefront. He heads to earth. He takes the fight to earth. And in these kind of last death throes and before his final removal, Satan wages his war through two powerful proxies, two agents of his warfare, these two beasts. 
That's what's going on in chapter 13. Just have a look. Um, so we, we've seen 12:17, the dragon wages war, and then um, 13 verse 7, the first beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Or verse 10, if anyone's taken captive to captivity, he goes or is slain by the sword. It's all the language of war. The second beast as well joins the battles. Um, verse 15, he's, he's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship the image of the beast to be slain. There's one of the repeated ideas. Warfare. Satan working behind the scenes, raging, seeking to devour, fighting a war on earth against God and his people. But what does the war actually look like? If we're going to be kind of forearmed and prepared for this battle, if we're going to fight the right enemy and not just chase kind of shadows... We need to know, how's he fighting? What kind of weapons? We need kind of military intelligence, if you like. And that's where Romans 13 comes in. So here's a question for you. Is coronavirus the work of the devil? Are the Californian wildfires? Is that where we're seeing this great conflict being played out, this kind of the chaos we sometimes see seemingly in the natural world? No. Just know. Revelation's already said that actually things like earthquakes or plagues, other terrible things happening in the world, they are the first tremors of God's judgments. The great warning signs that things are not right with our Creator. They're signs we're in a fallen world, a broken world. They're like six trumpets warning before the seventh final judgment falls. We've seen that already. That's not what the devil is doing. And also that means the fight for climate change or the war against COVID even is not the biggest or most significant conflict that humanity is embroiled in. Not from Revelation's perspective. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not denying climate change and I'm certainly not denying its significant consequences for humanity. Likewise, this week of all weeks, I'm, in, I'm in no, under no illusions about how painful dealing with the COVID crisis is. The huge mental, economic, emotional, relational costs that that's bringing into our lives. Just this week, I've heard numerous people say just how discouraging it was to have lockdown reverse course, to start to tighten up um, again, and especially with the winter coming. I know lots of us are saddened and sobered by that both the death toll and just the toll on life. We're going to need to look out for each other. We're going to need to help each other, especially those living alone or struggling, looking after children or already feeling deep, deeply isolated or mentally unwell. It's not going to be easy. So I'm not saying that's a small thing. That is a big fight, a global fight. But Revelation would say there's an even bigger battle going on a far bigger global battle. You won't hear about it on TV, but it is raging right now. And the implications for humanity are even more serious than COVID or climate change. The bigger global war is about worship. That's the other repeated word you could have found in those couple of minutes in Revelation 13, worship. The war that the devil's waging is a worship war. 
Let me just show you that again. So look with me. Verse 4. His people on earth worshipped the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Or verse 8 of 13. All who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name's not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. Or the second beast, verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. And verse 15, we've said it, it gives this breath and causes at the end of the verse those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The unseen war is about worship. Who will the people of the earth worship? Actually, whether we're facing prosperity or plagues, that is the question. Who will we worship? A Christian's going to give up worshipping the true and living God under the onslaught of Satan and his beasts? Will the world continue to be persuaded into worshipping everything and anything except God our maker? I realise that's often not thought of or spoken of as a huge issue, not worthy of primetime news coverage, but again, that, I guess, is just smoke bombs from Satan. Because when you think back to the start of the Bible... This is actually the key issue. The whole reason the world is fallen, with all of its sickness and sorrow and suffering and even death, is precisely because humans chose to listen to created things rather than the creator, to worship our own appetites rather than our God, to exchange the truth about God for a lie about God. And if you've been in any of our small groups studying Romans this week, or it might be next week, Romans 1.18 onwards says exactly this, that actually the failure to worship God, the turn to idolatry, that is the heart problem in our world, the key problem. In other words, the worship war is a much bigger deal than it might appear. I know students coming to university at the moment face all sorts of uncertainties and questions. The biggest question is... Who are you going to worship? You also see that in, in kind of where we're at in Revelation at the moment. Chapters 12 and 13 are about the, the, the dragon, the Satan and his tactics. Um, and they sit inside two gospel proclamations about worship. Um, we, we don't need to turn there, but in chapter 14, just after our passage, an angel flies overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And this is what he says. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So that's the call for true worship just after this passage. And just before this passage, in chapter 11, we were there a couple of weeks ago, the church is witnessing to God, again, calling people to worship. And in the middle, Satan has his counterattack the war he's waging, a war against that witness, against worship of the true gods. So then, let's look at how he does it. I've said there are two powerful proxies, two agents, two beasts that he's working through, and two great weapons in his hands. And we need to know about these because most people aren't directly tempted into Satanism. 
I mean, a few people are. There is Satanism in Edinburgh. But it's relatively small. Most people aren't kind of directly taken in by worshipping Satan. But actually, lots of people are affected by these two beasts as he operates through these agents. Just before we get into it, um, let me say, if, you're, if you noticed at the end of the passage about the number of the beast or the mark of the beast, if you're desperate for an answer to what that's going to be, please don't get distracted through the rest of what I say. We are going to get there, I promise, we'll, we will land there. Um, but actually, to understand them, you need a run-up from the context. So we're going to look at the beast properly in, first, and then we'll get to the, the number and the mark of the beast. Um, these two beasts, you'll see on the back of the server sheet, there's an outline. Uh, the first beast I've called scary political power. And the second beast represents subtle, false ideologies. So the first beast is scary political powers. That is, beast one is the beast of tyranny. Authoritarian regimes, oppressive governments, totalitarian political systems. Why do I say that? Well, whenever you're trying to understand Revelation, we need to have the Old Testament in our hands. Um, do you know there's an allusion to the Old Testament on average every one and a half verses in Revelation? That's quite something. Um, it's kind of painted in the palette of the Old Testament, using all the pictures and colors and, and, and symbols uh, of the Old Testament. And the pictures here in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, are from Daniel, Daniel 7. We won't turn to it now. But Daniel 7 contains a terrifying vision of a series of beasts stepping on to human history. I'm going to describe what Daniel saw, and I want you to look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and see if you can spot the similarities. This is what Daniel saw. Out of the, it's a paraphrase, not reading it. Out of the sea, Daniel sees a beast like a lion, then a second beast like a bear, a third beast like a leopard, and the fourth beast has ten horns. I wonder if you notice the similarity with this beast. Although notice the beast here in Revelation 13 isn't four beasts, but one. One kind of super beast, like some kind of composite beast. If, you were, um, if you're old enough to remember the Mighty Morphing Power Rangers, they sometimes combined. It's an awful children's program, but they combined into this kind of mega beast. That's what's going on here, a kind of composite beast. Which is interesting, because in Daniel, each beast is a kingdom. There's a lion for the Babylonian Empire, a bear for the Medo-Persian Empire, a leopard for Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, and a ten-horned empire that was Rome. Each beast was a successive kingdom, it's clear in the context. But here, they're all kind of mushed together, a composite beast. I think to show us this is symbolizing all human empires and powers. It's the archetype of oppressive regimes. And this beast has mighty strength. Strength because he has satanic power behind him. There's a clue to that in verse 1. The last creature we saw with seven heads and ten horns was the red dragon of chapter 12, Satan. This beast looks a lot like its master. But it's explicit in verse 2. Just look. Um, verse two, end of verse 2. To it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. So here you see a state or a kingdom when it becomes Satan's sidekick, when it does his dirty work for him. 
striking that. We need to sober up and and realize the Bible says this. I think some of us only get our view of government from Romans 13. The rulers are put in place by God, and we should submit to them. That is true, absolutely. We need to also realize that across human history and across the globe today, some human authorities are doing the devil's dirty work. And we'll find out what it is in just a moment. Just in case anyone's getting worried, I'm not about to make a point about following the coronavirus guidelines or not. Um, I don't think that's really the focus of this at all. I think it makes a lot of sense what our government is asking us to do at the moment with those guidelines. But when, for example, the Roman Empire uh, demanded allegiance to the emperor above all to worship the imperial cult, Caesar being divine, well, the beast was alive and kicking. If our government ever asked us to censor which bits of the Bible we can proclaim, and just so you know, that that may happen if the um, current drafted hate speech bill goes through. It's not just an attack on free speech in general. It is effectively an attack on the witness of the church. It would be a sighting of this beast on the move again. Actually, for many years in the UK, we haven't felt the force of this beast firsthand, but a number of our brothers and sisters around the world are feeling it. This is talking about tyranny, oppressive totalitarian rule, ruling with brute force. A number of our global mission partners are serving in places where they witness this. There's a clue to the kind of brute force thing, again, right up front in the description. Did you notice with the beast where he's wearing his crowns? Diadems is the word used, but it just means crowns. He's not wearing them on the head like a symbol of legitimate authority. He's dangling them on his horns, which are symbols of power. It's just brute force is how this rule is exercised. And so, verse 7, he makes war, even conquers the saints. So, verse 10, people are taken captive and slain by the sword. It's the beast of tyranny. Whether through incarceration or attack, martyrdom, or even economic punishment, which we'll see more of later in the passage, both through history and across the globe, authoritarian states are often precisely Satan's means of waging war on the worship of the church and the witness of the church. It does actually explain how history is littered with human rulers doing the most unimaginable things to other human beings, including to Christians. How was it? How on earth was it that Nero ended up dousing Christians in wax and and setting them alight as torches for his garden or or feeding them to lions in the arena for popular sport and the entertainment of the Roman populace? How was it that ISIS fighters could storm through a whole swathe of territory in the Middle East, lining up Christians to behead them on live TV or threaten whole families house to house with the same if they didn't deny Jesus? Where does that level of anti-Christian violence come from? Revelation 13 says the raging enemy of God works through proxies 
including Beast One, this scary political power. And notice, the beast takes people with him, crowds of people, not necessarily because they like him or are persuaded about his truth, but just because resistance seems futile. Look at verse 4, the second half. They worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And of course, we still see that today. There are mighty nations doing horrendous things, both to political enemies abroad and their own citizens internally. And no one will stand up to them because they seem unstoppably powerful. Politically, economically, military might. It's just too strong. Actually, there's one other thing about this beast. Apart from brute force, there's one other thing. This beast fights the worship war not just through the sword, but through words. Words of blasphemy. So the bully beast is also a blasphemous beast. Uh, Explicitly in his words, and as we'll see implicitly by taking God's place. Just look at verse 5 at the verbal warfare. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Look at verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name in his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, the church. So the beast kind of sets himself up against God, denies God any right to access the public square, verbally, politically attacks the idea of God and the people of God. Explicit blasphemy. Actually, more subtly than that, he also operates as a kind of fake Jesus Christ. That is, he's usurping Jesus from his place on the throne. I mean, for the early readers, they would have been thinking uh, of Rome. I mean, the Roman Empire is literally claimed to be king of kings or savior of the world or divine. They, They demanded number one allegiance, taking God's place. And there are all sorts of ways this beast is taking Jesus' place. In verse 3, did you notice there's a kind of death and resurrection? Uh, One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. A dreadful parody of Jesus, who actually died and rose from the dead. So earlier in Revelation, heaven marvels at the lamb who was slain and is now sat on the throne. But here on earth... People are taken in by the beast instead. In verse 4, the question is, who is like the beast? That's a question in the Bible you ask of God. Who is like God, Yahweh? No one. He's the creator. And then most outrageously of all, verse 7, he apes the son of man. In Daniel 7, after, after all those beasts, the thing that finally puts a stop to it all is the son of man. This king who has all authority over all nations to judge the world. And yet here, this beast apes him. Verse 7. All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So it's a usurper taking God's place. Self-proclaiming as the ultimate one. The one to whom ultimate allegiance is required. And again, it happens across our world. The world of the dictator is gospel, or the party comes first. There's nothing above that. Or you can be a Christian in private, but don't you dare bring Jesus to work. Or don't you dare talk to neighbors about him or bring his values into the public square. You see, we don't see this beast bearing his teeth here, 
I'm not sure he's as far away as we might think. And John's application is actually pretty sobering to this first point. Just look at verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The call here is to endure even along the path of suffering. Striking that, because we've just heard in chapter 12 that Jesus has beaten Satan. The war has been won. But in this period of history, Christians still take hits for living Jesus' way. The call is to endure. We saw in chapter 11, we are protected while we're witnessing, but the protection doesn't look like uh, invulnerability to physical attack or persecution or even martyrdom. Uh, We've seen that in church history. No, the protection is that the Christian believer is eternally safe. As verse 8 puts it, we're written in the Lamb's book of life. But we may have to walk down the road of Jesus on the way there, the road of the cross. The Christian student at university doesn't always have an easy time when they say publicly they are a Christian and will live God's way. You see, in this passage, there are two camps in humanity. There are people siding with the beast, partly because it looks like the safest option. I don't want to take that on. Then there's the people of the lamb who look like they're losing often. But this is just the final death throes of Satan. The lamb has won the victory and will return. With him is the only safe place to be. So keep enduring be a great thing to pray for our mission partners and those they serve, that they'd keep enduring. That's beast one. Scary political powers. But Satan's attack is double-barreled. So no sooner has John seen that beast from the sea, he then sees a beast from the earth. And beast two is far more subtle than the first one. Beast 2 represents subtle, false ideologies. Later in Revelation, this beast is called the the false prophet, for short, which gets at the point. He's the beast of of wrong ideas, of deceptive half-truths, of of distortions, both religious ones and seemingly non-religious ones. So secularism and materialism would be in here, the beast of false ideology. Notice the very first thing we're told about him, verse 11, is his deceptive appearance. Verse 11, uh, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Ah, it looks like Jesus. But it spoke like a dragon. More fakery. The dragon's deceit dressed up to look like the lamb. And actually, as you, as you read on, it's not just Jesus that the second beast is aping, but the work of God the Holy Spirit. You see, this beast points to the other beast, directing people to worship him, just as the Spirit does to Christ. Uh, It does that through fake spiritual power. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. Um, This beast, verse 15, is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. 
It's all a grotesque parody of, of the gospel, of the real gods. If you know John's gospel at all, you'll, you'll know, you'll recognize the work of the Spirit is to empower the witness of Jesus and the church, to work signs that show us who Jesus really is, even to give breath um, of born-again life. And yet here, the beast is faking it all, looking the part, dressed like a lamb, but actually speaking as the dragon. Notice, and if you've drifted off, this now's the moment to come back in. Um, notice there's a relationship of mutual dependence between the two beasts. You see, ideas on their own can't bully or kill anyone. States on their own have no legitimacy to justify bullying or killing anyone. And so the dragon uses beast too, his ideological mouthpieces, to prop up the first beast. Look at verse 12. This beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. I don't particularly want to go through a list of how this has happened in human history, but let me give you a really stark example. It was the abhorrent racist ideology of Nazism that combined with the military and scientific force of the Third Reich state, that together, two beasts, in tandem, built gas chambers. And it's not the only time when a strong ideology sways a whole people and then is brutally enforced by the state. Numerous dictators around the world justify their iron rule fueled by an ideology. I don't think it's unique to communism or Nazism or capitalism even. Even at the moment in our society, certain values are beginning to slide. It used to be that tolerance was defined as loving and respecting people who think differently to me, people I disagree with, but still love and respect and give the right to speak. Increasingly, tolerance is saying, you're not allowed to say that here. Sometimes beast, too, is seen in false religion. So here's an example. Jesus said that he was the only way to the Father, that no one can come to the Father except through him. The beast says anything but that. So that maybe there's another God Maybe there's another way to God. Maybe there's just more gods. Or maybe all ways lead to that one same God. Or maybe it's what God? I mean, is he even there? Just relax, be happy. Or maybe it's design your own God. We're all meaning makers. Or maybe it's all gods are basically the same. That is just a myriad of lies. The beast's voice isn't just found in other religions. It's found in so-called Christian teaching. It's found inside churches. It's one of the striking things about the letters to the seven churches early in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Four of them, Jesus raises the issue of false teaching happening in the church, on the ground. It's 
Notice the second beast does have power, real power to perform miracles. Verse 13, it performs great signs. Verse 14, by the signs it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So incidentally, if you are a student looking to choose a church in Edinburgh, and please don't pick it on signs and wonders. Pick it on what comes out of mouths. What is actually said? Does it fit with Jesus and what he says in the Bible? And let me just say that these false ideas, they're not all obvious. If they were, we wouldn't need this warning. If they were, so many people wouldn't be taken in. I think some of these kind of dragon-fed lines, if you like, will come to seem like common sense in a culture. It won't obviously look like spiritual warfare. Not even always religious. It's just the way everyone thinks. It's just how you do things. So I wonder in our culture, if some of it would look like the focus on now and self and material accumulation, as if the universe is about making myself as comfortable as possible. It's just natural, isn't it? Well, no, actually, the universe is about worshipping the living God. Yes, enjoying his gifts, but in worship to him, not in service of self. Well, likewise, in discussions about all sorts of moral and ethical issues, whether gender, sexuality, defining self, actually, who has the final word? Is it me or my maker? You see, idolatry is at the heart of the dragon's tactics through both of these beasts. He's trying to get us to worship anything but the living God. This is a worship war. And the reality is every single person on the planet is on one side of the line, whether you like it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. In this passage, everyone is marked either by the beasts or by the lamb. And so as we come into land... Um, This is what I think the mark of the beast is about in verses 16 and 17. I don't think it's talking about barcodes, if you've heard that, or PayPal, or some kind of future integrated economic chip in our heads by which we all do business. I don't think it's that, because again, look to the Old Testament to, to get the picture. In the Old Testament, God's word was written on his people's foreheads and hands. And in Ezekiel, those who worshipped God and not idols were marked, sealed, for safety when judgment came. That's clearly what's going on here, because if you read one verse on into chapter 14, which is why it's printed on the sheet, one verse on, I looked, says John, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, within the 144,000, that's all of God's people, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. The point is, you're either marked by Jesus and his blood, forgiven, safe, belonging to God, or you belong to these beasts, the mark of the beast. It's not a physical thing, it's a symbol of where you belong. And it costs to belong to Jesus and not the beast. Did you notice that? Verse uh, 17, no one can buy or sell unless he has this mark. Again, we haven't seen much of this recently in our culture, but around the globe today, many Christians suffer financially and economically because they stand out from the dominant culture around them. They refuse to bow the knee to the local gods or or a secular ban on God. 
Many Christians could have better careers or houses or personal safety if they never mentioned Jesus. But John's call, verse 18, is for us to have wisdom. If the scary power of beast one required endurance, well, the subtle deception of beast two requires wisdom. Because it's so easy to be carried along by him, by a culture, to worship other things than the living God. Because this fake beast gets close to looking like the real thing. Which means very finally and very briefly, it is time to just mention the the number of the beast. Uh, There it is in in, um, uh, verse 18. The number of the beast is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, pages have been written about uh, what this means and who it is. Um, I actually think it's the simplest answer is actually the right one. Um, I think the numbers are being used symbolically. And throughout Revelation, the number seven has been the kind of complete number, and particularly God's number, the number of what God is doing, the kind of perfect number. So um, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowls, uh, seven days of creation. That's the kind of perfect number. And when something's repeated three times, uh, that's often news of God because he's, he's the utmost perfection, not just holy, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So if you like, God would be triple perfect, 777. But the beast is not. He's 666. Trying to pretend, trying to get close, trying to take the place, but actually unholy, wrong, deceitful. And so the dragon, beast one, beast two, form this grotesque trio. I would say an unholy trinity, but there's only one trinity. This is a trio waging war against the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And John says this is the number of a man, i.e. not the number of God. When you hear these ideas, they just come from human mouthpieces of a satanic offensive. Don't get sucked in to the false worship they're promoting. You see, there's just one throne. It's already occupied by Jesus. And he will return. Which means, whatever the cost, until he returns, we only bow the knee to his throne. Or as Romans would say, we offer our lives as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We know that your word tells us that we are not in a physical fight. And we pray so much you would help us to keep worshipping you and keep witnessing even when it's costly. We do pray for many connected to this church all over the globe tonight. You would protect them, keep them enduring. And please would you give us all wisdom. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.